0: Have you ever found yourself in situations you just didn't understand? Maybe situations you don't feel like you deserve, or you can't understand why God is allowing to come into your life. I've been in those situations, and I'm thankful that our Bible, our scriptures, have answers when we're in these quandaries. Today, we're going to be looking at God's unexplainable ways. And um, for those of you who haven't been with us, we've been going through, on a, well periodically, a series on the book of Romans. And uh, we've been also talking about church history from time to time, but we've been, we've been looking this year at the book of Romans. And a few, a few chapters ago, we actually began um, looking at God's ways. And uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 9... He actually uh, spent quite a bit of time discussing God's ways, God's unexplainable ways, how God has the right, he reserves the right to be able to give to his his people what he knows is best for them. And in fact, Paul tries to explain a little bit to the Gentiles in Rome, because he's mainly writing to the Gentiles. Most of the believers in Rome were Gentiles, evidently. We see that in Romans chapter 11. Um, He's writing the Gentiles, he's trying to help them understand how it is that there's a transition that has taken place. We, in the Seventh-day Adventist faith, we believe that that at the cross, well after the cross, after the time of the, the Jewish rejection of the cross, there was a transition which took place from the Jewish nation representing God on this earth and being his representative people to take his message to the world. Instead, there was a transition to the Gentiles or Jews or anyone who believed in Jesus being the heirs according to the promise, the heirs of Abraham, the children of Abraham, spiritual descendants of Abraham. Do you understand? We don't have time to unpack that in detail. But that's what we, we believe. And in Romans chapter 9, we, we took a look at, uh, at this in the sermon called the, the Calling. If you don't have that, go online and listen to it or, or pick up a CD. But in Romans chapter 9, we see the sorrow for Israel that Paul had. And, and yet he's defending God's right to choose someone else as his representative here on earth we notice that this is not talking primarily about salvation, but talking about representation. It's still very much possible for Jews and Israelites to be saved. That's not the issue at all. In fact, it was possible for both Esau and Jacob to be saved. But somehow God arbitrarily chose that Jacob would be the one through whom his descendant the Messiah would be born. That's God's right to choose, Paul's arguing. Not, he's not saying one is saved for eternity and one's lost for eternity. No, not that at all. He's talking about representation, not salvation. God has a right to choose because God knows what is best. And so we saw that in, in Romans chapter 9. We saw that God uh, that Paul had already spent eight chapters discussing salvation. And the issue in Romans 9 is not primarily salvation, but representation. And so God is a just God. He can choose a donkey to speak for him and he reserves the right to choose to even have stones cry out if his people are not faithful to their task of telling the world about him. Romans chapter 10, he went on He talked about how the, the, uh, the, the law was a stumbling block for Israel. That's why Israel was passed over as, his, as God's special representative people here on this earth, not because they were bad or inherently wrong, their genetics were not in, improper, no, it was because they stumbled at that stumbling stone, the stumbling stone was trying to earn their salvation through works, thinking that because they did the right thing, they belonged to the right clique, the right group, they had their truth, therefore they must be saved. Friends, this is a danger for the church in every age a danger of becoming self-satisfied and complacent and thinking that because we have the right things together that somehow we are saved. No, it's because and only because of Jesus' miraculous, unexplainable grace that we can be saved. But for a miracle of God, I am lost for eternity. And it doesn't matter what group I belong to, what day I go to church on, what I eat, what I don't eat, what I. It doesn't. None of those things matter. I'm not saying they aren't important. These are fruits that we see in our lives. We belong to Jesus. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. But, friends, no matter what I do in my life, I do not deserve salvation. And, And if you take the most abject sinner on the street that you might see, You can know in your heart, according to the Word of God, you can know in your heart that you deserve salvation no more than that abject sinner. Just because you're a churchgoer doesn't make you and I eligible for salvation. No, it's because of God's grace. And so, Romans chapter 10, we we find that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that really mean whosoever? Does it even mean churchgoers? Oh, wonderful truth, friends, that God can even save good people. I'm not trying to be funny. Good people are the hardest for God to save. That's why Jesus told the good people in his day that the publicans and prostitutes, the mafia bosses and prostitutes would enter the kingdom of God before they did. Oh, we need a sense of our need of a Savior in order to be saved. And sometimes being good is the greatest obstacle to being great or to being saved. And so, Romans chapter 11, Paul picks up this same theme. And turn with me in your Bibles there. Paul gives a shot across the bow of the Gentile's ship. He's just He's just explained to them that the Jews have been rejected, that they are now privileged to be God's representative people. In Romans chapter 11, Paul continues and he says, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Listen, I'm not trying to say, friends, that Israelites can't be saved. And by the way, this, this term Israelite that he used here is a very curious term because in actuality the Israelites, the term Israelite had been used in the Old Testament to refer to all of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Now there were only two tribes remaining, the tribes of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. We tend to refer to them as Jews, right? And he's using, to me it's some indication that he is using this in a spiritual sense. That God's, God's special people of the past are no longer God's special people. Today he has a new Israel. You understand, what I, you understand what's being said here? Because if he had just wanted to talk about his nation, the Jews of his day, he would have used the term Jew. Uh, the, the other ten tribes had pretty much dissolved into, into the countryside. They would become the Samaritans and, and intermarried among the, the people. But at any rate, he says, Has God cast away His people? Certainly not. I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul is trying to say here, look, just because Israel has been forsaken or has been passed over uh, at the end of their 70 weeks of probationary time as God's representative people does not mean that God does not still have elect among them. There's a remnant even among Israel that are faithful to Jesus, faithful to God and to His Word. And of course, Paul was hoping. I think he was planning to be a part of that remnant, right? Um, he, was, he, was, he was explaining to them that God still wanted Israel to be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He goes on and he says, Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of what? not according to the, the, the demarcation, the denominationalization of works, but according to the election of grace, that God chose to allow these people, us, to be a part of His grace. But if it were of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So only a group among Israel were able to obtain what they wanted among um, God, uh, God's favor and God's grace. And that's because they obtained it by grace and not by works. Skip down. Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now here we begin what I think is a very fascinating passage in Paul's writing. He's using a little bit of sort of tongue-in-cheek, almost it seems like a sense of humor to describe the situation in which he, he, he finds himself in and his nation in. You see, it's not that God didn't want Israel to be saved and that's why he passed over them as his representatives and he gave the gospel to the Gentiles, to anyone who would believe in Jesus to take it to the world. It wasn't because he, he didn't like the Jews or he didn't want them to be saved. In fact, It was so that they could be saved. Isn't that ironic? We tend to think of the fall of Israel, and that's the term that he uses here in this chapter, the fall of Israel as being something negative, pejorative, something that's a tragedy, too bad. But in God's unexplainable ways, the fall of Israel was intended to be the redeeming of Israel. Don't you love our God? Don't you love our Saviour? Even in the things which come as a result of our hard-heartedness, even in the curses which sin brings into our lives, God is seeking to turn those around to be a blessing. And this is what what Paul's saying. Look, Israel wasn't taking the message of Jesus to the world. They were instead killing those who were, right? The stoning of Stephen, 34 A.D., marked... That time in which Jesus was seen standing at the right hand of the throne of God. We talked about this once, I think. What what other times do we find Jesus standing? The Bible says he went and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So why is he standing? Michael, in Daniel chapter 12, is seen standing at the close of probation. There's a close of probation at the stoning of Stephen. A probation for Israel, not, not for salvation, but for representation. And so... Israel begins killing those who are giving the message of Jesus. And Jesus says, look, I want Israel to be saved. The only way I can save them is to give the message of salvation to others. They could even preach it to Israel. And so the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And this is how Paul describes it. He says it here. He says, certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Maybe, maybe if I do a great work among the Gentiles, maybe if I see these people who haven't known the truth, haven't known the way of God, who haven't been indoctrinated in the Old Testament scriptures for generations, maybe if Israel sees those people transformed by grace, maybe if, if Israel sees those people changed in their life and their, their living lives of victory and overcome. Coming, maybe Israel will even want what I tried to give them all along. Oh, God's unexplainable ways. God works through their downfall, through their pain and suffering, through their disappointment to bring them to salvation. And that's the theme of the next few verses as he continues. And so, Israel, Israel is, is not forgotten, not forsaken. They've been, they have fallen in his term, but they are, they are to be redeemed even in that fall, and to be saved even in their fall. Verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Can you imagine what God wants to do with His own chosen people who have been blessed with His law for generations, if they would accept the Messiah. If the Gentiles can light the world with the message of God's love and the salvation of the cross, what could the Jews do if they accepted the message and gave their lives to proclaiming it? Notice he goes on, and he gives a warning to the Gentile believers. Um, You see... The Israelites can still be saved. We've seen that already in verses 1 through 5. Um, Their fall from representation is intended to work toward their salvation, not against their salvation. We see that in verses 6 through 15. And their fall is a warning to us, verses 16 through 25. Notice with me, he says in verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if some of the branches... Uh, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild tr- olive tree were grafted in among them and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, the branches that were cut off so that you could be grafted in. But if you do not, do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, if God was able to take you and I who are not a part of this natural olive tree, and graft us in so that we become a part of the olive tree. That's not a reason for us to feel proud. It's a reason for us to marvel at the grace of God. And in fact, he goes on and he would say, in um, in verse, uh, let's see, where does he say? He says, um, listen, if God spared not the natural branches, if they were cut off, Don't think that God has to rely upon you. You could also be cut off and another grafted in. It's by the grace of God, not because we deserve it, that we're a part of God's people, a part of God's salvation. And so we see their fall is a warning to us to take note and to take heed and to uh, listen that we not become proud because we think we are just Uh, God's special people. Verse, Verse 26 through 36, Paul then begins to marvel at how God has done this. Verse 33, our scripture today. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom he glory forever. Amen. You see, the Bible is full of surprises when you think about it. Have you ever thought about it? Now, I know it's not full of surprises to us because we've become familiar with the stories. We know the history. We know the end before the beginning, right? So we, we know what happens there at the brook Kareth when Elijah is hungry, and crows, which usually scavenge and eat anything they can find... ...are bring in food, right? We don't see the irony in it because we know it already. We, we know what happened there along the, the, little, the little stream... ...when David picks up five smooth stones and faces the giant. We know the end of the story, so we don't find the irony in the story. But the Bible is full of of surprises. If we were to look at it, we were to put ourselves in the story before we know the end of the story, we would recognize what Paul is trying to say here. God's ways are unexplainable. He does things, he accomplishes things in ways we would not expect. We can't understand. We can't explain. The Bible's full of surprises. And, uh, Let's just think about a few of these here this morning. Surely the sons of Jesse in the camp of Israel on that day must have been praying for God to deliver them from Goliath. Don't you think so? Don't you think the sons of Jesse, along with the rest of the camp of Israel, were praying for deliverance as they tried to chase away their annoying little brother? Right? Isn't that what they did? What are you doing down here? Get back to your sheep where you little kids belong. You don't belong here at the battlefront. That's what they said to him. And yet God's unexplainable ways, in God's unexplainable ways, God intended to defeat the giant through no means they had in mind, but through a little boy they despised. That's God's unexplainable ways. The little shepherd boy, the little annoying little brother that they tried to chase away, God would use to defeat Goliath. In God's unexplainable ways, he brought water from dry rocks in the middle of the desert. How do you figure? How would God do that? I don't know. Would you have sat there before as you're hopefully not murmuring, complaining, I'm afraid I might have, with the rest of the one and a half million Israelites in the middle of the desert with no water, with thousands of livestock, and all your little kids and families and elderly, and there's no way out? would you have said, well, you know what? Let's just ask God if he'll bring water from rocks. It wouldn't have crossed my mind because God's ways are unexpected and unexplainable. They are. They really, really are. God would speak truth to the prophet Balaam. Now, how does God usually speak truth to the prophets? Numbers 12, verse 6. If there's a prophet among you, I'll speak to him and I'll make myself known to him in a vision or in a dream. That's how God speaks to prophets, right? How did God speak to the prophet Balaam when he wasn't really listening too well? Through a donkey. Would you expect that? No. God's unexplainable ways. He brings water from rocks. He speaks to prophets through donkeys. You know, he saved Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar's soul, by having him lose his mind. Do you ever think about that? He saved his soul by letting him lose his mind. He went wild, crazy for years, grazing in the fields, running the forest like a wild animal. And through this, God saved his soul. Is that, would you have just thought of that? Let me think how I can save Nebuchadnezzar. Now, sending him a dream, that was Daniel 2. That might have been, you know, that's not so out of the ordinary. Maybe sending some, you know, some young people to Babylon to witness, that's a good idea. But who would have thought of having him lose his mind to save his soul? God would. Because God's ways are unexplainable. They're past finding out. We can't understand them. These stories are familiar to us so we don't marvel at their, at, their, at their irony. But God saved Nebuchadnezzar by letting his mind go insane. In fact, he even preserved the truth and his people by having them taken into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. How do you figure? God allows These things to come to our lives and tries to use them in order to save us because he's God, because his ways are past finding out. He took Naaman away from the clean rivers of Syria and over to the Jordan River. If you've ever been to the Jordan River, it's nothing but a really muddy, murky, slime bottomed stream. I mean, it's dirty. And it was dirty then. Because you can read about it in 2 Kings. (laughs) Naaman, when he was met by the prophet Elisha's counsel or his servant's advice from the prophet, um, he said, Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus far better than all the waters of Israel? The Jordan, the muddy Jordan. How do you get clean by washing in dirty water? And yet, in God's unexplainable ways, he healed Naaman of his leprosy. I love this story because for, for um, this is for Dr. Chung, when he came out of the water, he not only was recovered of his leprosy, he had all of his accumulated years of sun damage from battle wiped away. His face was, I mean, his skin was like the skin of a little child. You're not talking about just the leprosy gone. He had no more precancers, sunspots, freckles, whatever they were. I don't know. His skin was like the skin of a little child. God's unexplainable ways. By muddy water, dirty river, a foreign country. You see, God works in ways that we don't understand, we don't expect, and just when you think you have God figured out, He will surprise you again. And we can look at these stories in the Bible, friends, I want to make it practical this morning, we can look at these stories in the Bible and we can say, yeah, God worked in unexpected ways, but then we come down to 2014 and we, we actually have the audacity to act as though God should work in the ways we expect Him to today. Are you with me? Yeah. We can see the foolishness of Naaman thinking that God would, you know, God would have the prophet come out and say abracadabra and strike his hand over the place and say some fancy saying and he'd be cleansed and pay for it and, and go away. But when it comes to us, we have certain expectations of how we want God to act, how we want to be saved. And when God doesn't work that way, we don't relate very well. We tend to get discouraged. We tend to become maybe resistant. We tend to forget that God works to save us in ways we don't expect. Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out the scripture tells us you know for a seed to grow what must happen to it it must die and the same is true in our spiritual experience and I want to try to just use a few words here this morning to 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 try to bring our minds to our current situation here in 2014 living as humans still seeking to be saved by a loving God amen Still wanting to be a part of his plan and a part of his good uh, news. For our new man to prosper, our old man must suffer. That doesn't make sense to us. In fact, we don't want that. We don't expect that. We want to be saved in dignity. Pain free. But God's ways are unexplainable and His ways past finding out. He uses methods that surprise us. surprised the people back then. Why should we not expect him to surprise us today? Too often we miss the point We're as baffled as Naaman who was told to dip in the Jordan River seven times. We too want to be cleansed from the leprosy of sin, don't we? Are you with me on that today? Do we want to be cleansed from the leprosy of sin? But we are surprised by the methods God uses to save us. The separation of sin from life is a messy work. It requires trials and tribulations, the furnace of affliction, the fires of persecution. But somehow, even though we can see that in history, we don't expect it today in our lives. We expect something else. How often do we recognize these for what they are? God trying to save our souls from eternal ruin. Usually when they come, we complain, we try to escape, we blame the individuals and even hold resentment toward them if they're involved in any negative experience in our lives, not realizing God is working in our lives to save us. Sometimes they happen to be fellow church members, and we imagine how much better our lives would be if they just found a different church to attend we've missed the whole point. The whole point of the history of God's saving throughout the scriptures. The whole point of God having unexplainable ways. If he saved the way we mortal humans expected him to save, he would cease to be God. He would be one of us. If he saved the way we want him to save, he would be saving us in our selfishness. And confirming us in our sins. You see, my friends, (laughs) God's ways are not only different, they are higher than our ways. And His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let me be very clear this morning. If you and I want to be saved, we must learn to accept God's will in our lives even when in trying circumstances. Instead of accepting and appreciating the ways and people God uses to save us, to separate us from our selfishness, too often we avoid or cast blame, resent, and even hate what God is trying to do. I want to be even more clear today. The church is not intended to be what selfish, unconverted people try to make it it's not a social club made up of people who all get along a clique of like-minded individuals who naturally enjoy each other's company and association with a pastor who preaches sermons that make everyone feel comfortable and happy the church is meant to help us grow spiritually the church is meant to help us grow spiritually it's meant to be an incubator for spiritual growth a place where selfishness must die because my ways are different than my brother's ways our personalities and perspectives and processes differ and if in a world we would never if in the world we would never associate without clashing and detesting and resenting and even avoiding and hating but god god calls us in the church listen to me god calls us in the church to love each other if that was just natural, expected, if it wasn't a part of God's unexplainable ways, then it wouldn't be the sure sign that God said people would recognize us by. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Oh, friends, that means that's not going to naturally happen. It needs a miracle. It's a part of God's unexplainable ways to put us in a family, to put us in a church family even, which can be an incubator for our spiritual growth. You see, our demonstration to the world of God's amazing, unexplainable power is when we love those we don't naturally love when we love those we don't naturally get along with, when we accept that as our divine obligation and calling, even without trying to make any exceptions. To wish for anything else is to wish for our soul's destruction. God calls us to love each other. All of us, with no exceptions. Are you thankful that God doesn't work the way you expect to work? I'm not trying to say the church isn't a wonderful place. There is something triumphantly joyful about recognizing that God has worked a miracle in your life and you love someone you don't naturally even like. Oh, there's fellowship. Listen, this is what it means to have a foretaste of heaven when we love each other. And so I believe that someone is saying now that's not fair. Why should God sit up in glory and require me to love my enemies, to die for uh, die to self and and be proactive and reaching out to those I don't even like and with whom I don't even naturally get along. This is the greatest misconception at all because of all Because God is not sitting up in heaven asking us to do something He hasn't already done. He's already shown us the way. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet His enemies... Isn't that what Paul says? While we were yet His enemies, Christ died for us. Born in a barn in a humble poor family... Jesus didn't meet the expectations of the religious of His day. He was expected to arrive as the hero of His people, to be met with accolades and praise. Instead, He was rejected by those He came to save. John chapter 1, verse 11 says, But He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. The Messiah was expected to rule on David's throne, but instead He died on Calvary's tree. Friends, God's unexple- unexpected, unexplainable ways. He was expected to rule on David's throne, but he died on Calvary's tree. In order to give life to us, his enemies, he had to willingly die at our hands. God's unexplainable ways. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. God's unexplainable ways. Today, on a hill far away, still stands an old rugged cross, the emblem of God's unexplainable ways. Are you thankful we serve a God who doesn't save the way selfish humans would expect Him to save? Are you thankful we serve a God who doesn't ask us to do anything He hasn't already done Himself? He laid down His life for His enemies. And He invites us to take up His cross. And to follow him, that our lives might be a revealing of God's unexplainable ways. Lord, today we recognize that we're not better than you, the servant is not above his master. We remember that you consented to suffer and die and to save me and to give me life. Today, Father, I just want to say that I want to, I want to accept your will for my life and even the unexplainable ways you choose to save still today. Father, Father, Forgive me for seeking salvation through my own designs, my own expected means. And help me, help me to accept Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, as my example and Savior. Father, there may be somebody else here who wants to make that decision too who wants to say, Jesus, I, I recognize today I don't deserve. I recognize today that sometimes I've even resented the methods or the people you've used to try to help me grow. Jesus, I want to give you my heart and ask you to change it to a heart of love for my brother, for my sister, for the world in need. For whatever the situation may be, Father, we, we need your, you to work in your way to save us, for that's the only way we can be cleansed. Father, if there's someone here who wants to make that decision, you know their hearts, you know their minds, you know their choices. And I just pray that as we prepare for evangelism, as we prepare to share with others, that we might remember who we are. We're, we're, we're saved by your grace, Father, through your unexplainable ways. We're your people, not because we're better, but because you love us and because you've chosen and because you've, you've given us your grace and your blood and your mercy. So, Father, today I just pray that you would work in your unexplainable ways in, my, hearts, in the, my heart and in the hearts of those who give you that permission today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse